Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. Podcast episodes also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Danny Avula, who is the director of the Richmond City and Henry. County Health Districts and is the Virginia State Vaccination Coordinator. He'll be with us today for a conversation about the Commonwealth's progress on vaccination efforts, the ongoing pandemic response, and the current state of affairs, and so much more. But before we get into that, welcome to the program, Dr. Avula. Thanks, Julian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for being with us. We appreciate uh, you making a moment of your time and a very busy schedule. So let's start and go big picture to begin with. We're recording this in early September, and as of today, Virginia's on the verge of 2,000 daily COVID hospitalizations across the Commonwealth. While those numbers are below the peaks that we saw this winter when we eclipsed 3,200 daily hospitalizations in January, they are greater than the previous surge numbers that Virginia experienced in the spring and summer of 2020. We've seen that recent growth as hospitalizations have surged over the past two months. Similarly, testing positivity rates and overall case numbers have also risen sharply since early July. We know a few things, including that the vast majority of newer hospitalizations and cases continue to be among those who are unvaccinated. So while Virginia's numbers aren't as bad as in many states, staying on this trajectory as we head into the fall is concerning as we see this current surge again placing strain on hospital bed and ICU capacity. So Dr. Avula, as you survey the landscape, what observations do you have about the current and evolving situation in the Commonwealth? Well, I'm both really encouraged, but also very concerned about where we're heading. I'm really encouraged because, you know, Virginia has done a great job of getting vaccinated. We have 70, almost 76% of adults with at least one dose and about 67% of the total eligible population who are fully vaccinated. And that puts us ahead of a lot of our neighboring states and I think is in many ways what has helped us stave off as severe a peak with this Delta variant as some of our neighboring states have experienced. And we also aren't seeing quite the degree of strain on the hospital systems that our neighboring states have experienced. But that number continues to tick upwards. And I think the reality of where we are right now with the Delta variant, while case counts are slowing down, I think the hospital curve is always a little bit behind the, the case curve. And so we're still looking ahead at another difficult month, month and a half, I would imagine, as it relates to hospitalized patients and patients with severe disease. And that's coming at a time where we know that we see flu, RSV in younger kids. We see all sorts of other reasons that, that hospitalizations are increasing, and that timing isn't great for us. So I, I am concerned about what the next few weeks holds. We mentioned vaccines a moment ago, and, and you talked about some of the statistics uh, in Virginia. As you said, almost three-fourths of, of the adult population has at least one vaccine dose. The latest numbers on the VDH website indicate nearly 5 million Virginians are fully vaccinated, yet there is more work to be done to reach vaccine-hesitant or skeptical populations, which again, we should say account for the overwhelming majority of new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations in Commonwealth, and, and that trend is holding pretty steady in states outside of Virginia as well. You've been a COVID-19 evangelist and messenger for many months now. I wonder of all the professional challenges you've encountered during this pandemic response, how would you rate the difficulty of persuading those vaccine holdouts compared to other things that you faced during this response? 
Oh, it's like nothing I've ever experienced, Julian. You know, we, for years in public health, have exercised different scenarios, and we've done lots of pandemic planning, and we have prepared in every way possible to be able to scale up for events like this. And while that has helped to some degree, I think both the fact that this global pandemic has far exceeded any challenge we've ever faced, but also the reality that we have experienced over the last year where People just don't believe that this pandemic is real, or they don't believe in the science or the scientists who are talking about it. And that's true about the disease itself. It's true about the vaccine. And so that level of hesitation, of distrust, of almost denial about what this disease is doing to our country is not something that entered our pandemic planning. And so that is what makes this really different for me. And so while some of the challenges early on were really really operational. How do we get vaccine out as quickly as possible? How do we, in a context of scarce supply, devise a system where, where really the highest risk individuals get access first? But after a few months, the challenge really pivoted to how do we convince people that this really is a threat and that there is a safe intervention that they should engage in, in in vaccination to prevent this from impacting themselves in their community. And it is, like I said, nothing I've ever experienced. Well, we want to make a plug for anybody who is unvaccinated. Vaccines are free. They are highly effective. They're available in your community. Go online, visit vaccinate.virginia.gov. You can find a local place, whether it's a pharmacy or a doctor's office or a community clinic that can get you a shot. So please, you know, strongly, strongly, strongly consider, because as we know, if you contract the virus at that point and you're hospitalized and you're sick, that's not the time when you're going to be able to get the vaccine or derive the benefits of the vaccine. With that plug out of the way, one thing, Dr. Vu, that I think many people may not fully appreciate is the level of coordination and collaboration among so many partners that's necessary to confront something on the scale of a global pandemic. And you mentioned just a moment ago that early on, some of the challenges were operational before we shifted into the vaccine phase of the pandemic response. You've overseen the consolidation of the Richmond City and Henrico County Health Districts and the addition of scores of community health workers, which I imagine is infrastructure and investment that's paid off and proven invaluable during the pandemic response in terms of all the audiences and constituencies who need to be reached and engaged. You've also had a front row seat to all the work done by hospitals and community vaccine clinics and pharmacies and so many other partners who's contributed to this pandemic response. So for the listener who isn't familiar with this work and the immense undertaking it is, I wonder what you might be able to share in terms of anecdotes, uh, just to give a glimpse into that world and how many moving pieces need to function together to achieve success in both pandemic response and mass vaccination efforts. Boy, it's a big question, Julian. I mean, you know, for the first few months, January to March or so of the pandemic or of the, the vaccination rollout, the biggest challenge we were facing was that we did not have enough vaccine to meet the demand. And so I spent, you know, close to 16, 17 hours a day working with different communities, working with different elected officials who were advocating for their communities, trying to help them understand where we were and, and why we had to prioritize certain populations over others and what we were doing to bring vaccine to those communities. And it was, you know, all day, everyday town halls for different state delegates or, or conversations with local government leaders. And it was really highly emotional because, you know, there was this 
know, impending threat. And people kept hearing that we have a vaccine, we have a way to protect our communities. But how that actually happened on the ground, there were a lot of details that needed to be worked out. And so really explaining what we were facing in terms of supply constraints, and then, you know, what the plan was for people to actually be able to access that vaccine. It was. It was a huge undertaking. At the beginning, I can't say enough about what a help the health systems were to this effort. They got a lot of the vaccine early on, largely because healthcare workers were, were of the highest priority, being on the front lines and being exposed every single day. But quickly, health systems and hospitals around the state transitioned to really providing community vaccination centers, and they continue to do that throughout the entire effort. Uh, there's so many fantastic examples around the state of health departments and hospitals that were putting on large-scale events where they were vaccinating thousands of people at a time. So it really was an incredible show of partnership, of, of shared commitment to helping Virginia get through this, and, and we really couldn't have done it without the, the hospital system, certainly, and all of our other provider partners. At the end of the day, pharmacies ended up playing probably the largest role in, in terms of actual vaccines delivered, and some of that was the federal government recognizing that we needed a very widespread and distributed footprint, a lot of different options for people to actually go and get vaccinated. So they started sourcing pharmacies directly, and pharmacies will continue to as we look forward to, to boosters and, and, you know, the future wave of vaccination because COVID's not going to disappear overnight. I think pharmacies will continue to be a huge part of that. And then our providers, you know, I know it was really frustrating for a lot of our primary care providers in the beginning of this effort because supply was constrained, their patients were clamoring for this vaccine, and providers were really frustrated because providers, all all we want to do is serve our patients and, and, and really help them get well. And when they didn't have the ability to do that, I know that was tremendously frustrating for so many of our primary care physicians and other providers on the ground. And thankfully, over time, more and more providers got enrolled and, and supported supply increased to a, a place where they actually could become a really helpful part of this rollout. And, and providers played a particularly important role with those who were not sure. You know, early on, so many people had questions. Uh, is the vaccine safe? Was it made too quickly? How do I know that it's going to work? And providers were such a needed part of that effort and, and will continue to be as, as we move forward with boosters to be able to share information with patients, to reassure them about the impact of this vaccine. And right now, we have about 2,700 providers across Virginia that are enrolled to be able to provide that vaccine. And that's certainly going to be helpful now and into the future as, as these vaccination efforts continue on over the next few months. Well, you mentioned boosters, so that's a great segue to the next question. I imagine that a lot of people do have questions out there about the availability of booster shots. I know that some early emphasis has been on immunocompromised individuals, but uh, what high-level overview or summary can you provide to the listening public about how boosters are rolling out, to whom they will be available, in what order, things of that sort? Sure. Well, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster over the last few weeks as we've heard different musings from federal government experts about what the booster landscape will look like. A couple of weeks ago, the federal government said we do see the need for boosters as they looked at data in Israel, the United Kingdom, and then a few key studies across the United States. They came to three conclusions. One, that 
the vaccine that we have does wane in its effectiveness over time. So the further out you are from the time that you initially got vaccinated, the effectiveness of that vaccine does start to drop off after a certain period of time. Two, that even if the effectiveness against infection drops off, the protection against severe outcomes, hospitalization, death, is still holding up really well, 90 plus percent against those more severe outcomes. And then three, in the context of this Delta variant, which is so much more contagious and is actually reinfecting people who are fully vaccinated, we are seeing the vaccine be less effective against infection against the Delta variant. So the totality of all of that information really led the federal government to say, okay, we have got to start planning for boosters. And we're going to draw a line in the sand on September 20th and hope that the regulatory processes that the FDA uses and the, and the CDC will allow us to start making steps forward with the booster rollout. Now, that's really contingent on the science, and the FDA has to look at those studies and make their own determinations about whether a booster is going to be needed, and, and at this point, we're a little bit in the dark. I think we do expect that there will be guidance on boosters. What we don't know is, will it initially be for an eight-month period, as the federal government originally thought, or will it be a shorter period? Or will there be certain populations like our 65 and above who really should be in line for booster shots first? So there's a lot that is currently being reviewed, a lot yet to be determined about who will need a booster and at what point. But I think the reality is that everybody will likely need a booster shot at some point in the near future, and that likely beyond this year, we will have booster shots that are reflective of the various strains that we're facing, much like the flu shot. We have a new formulation of a flu vaccine every year that's reflective of the dominating strains of flu around the world. Mm -hmm. As we've seen with COVID, we are seeing new mutations pop up periodically, and the, the mix of those mutations is going to look different at different times. I fully expect that we will have COVID boosters annually that reflect some of those mutations. Because as I said earlier, COVID is not going to disappear overnight. We're really going to have to learn to live with this and vaccinating against what we know now and against you know future strains is going to be one of the key interventions we have. Well, that's a wealth of information and we appreciate you sharing it. And now that we've tackled the serious stuff, Dr. Vula, I do have a few other questions are a little bit more fun and personal to give listeners a bit more insight about you beyond the work you do. The first is, for the benefit of our audience, we know you skipped some grades in elementary school, graduated <laughs> college at 19, before briefly teaching algebra to high school students who are basically the same age as you. You have a soft spot for 80s heavy metal. You are the father of five. You are the Richmonder of the year for 2020. You are a pediatrician. So aside from those things, what's one fun fact about yourself people would be surprised to hear? Huh. I am a pretty dang good foosball player, to <laughs> okay. say so myself. I I spent a lot of my years with friends kind of in college and post-college around the foosball table. Okay. I actually was uh, randomly watching, I believe it was ESPN once a year. They do a gimmick, ESPN 8, The Ocho, if you're familiar with that, which is a uh -huh. spinoff from a comedy movie where they sort of do random sports and they actually broadcast the International Foosball Championship. And I probably watched about 10 minutes of it, maybe, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. So there you go. That's great. It is, a, it is a fun game. It's a fun table game. The next question for you, sir, is, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? Oh, boy. 
as much as it pains me to admit this publicly as a physician, I have a soft spot for Philly cheesesteaks. So uh, there's a, a place called D'Alessandra's in, in Philadelphia that I would that, that would be my last meal. So I used to live in Philadelphia. I was born in New Jersey. I used to live in Philadelphia. So I don't know that I knew that you had a Philly connection, but I am very familiar with D'Alessandro's, and it is very good. Two questions follow up. Um, well, one comment and one question. I would just put a plug in for Steve's Prince of Steaks, which I think is is probably hands down the best steak in the city. And, and then the other question uh, for those who are uninitiated is, are you a whiz man, a probe man, and are you a with or without man, which means with or without onions on your sandwich? Yeah, I uh, I. Don't do it the true Philly style, but I like I like provolone with onions. Okay, I li- I like prove with onions as well. So I I mean I think that's authentic, and I think that's a, a great meal uh, to go out with. Um, <laughs> next is um, what you have been immersed in COVID nineteen, all things COVID nineteen post pandemic, and as you said, this is something that to some degree we're going to have to learn to live with. But when we hopefully get out the other side of this, what is one post COVID thing you're most looking forward to being able to do? Oh, man. I guess just traveling freely again. I, you know, this has been such a challenge to be in lockdown for most of the last year and, you know, being able to get on a plane, go see friends, uh, that that will be, I'll really enjoy returning to that. Sounds like something to look forward to. And finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three <laughs> entertainment survival kit picks? Oh, man. Movie would be Office Space. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I... I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. You well, got to get your I... TPS reports in. Yeah, exactly. Um, book. Man, I it's been such a long time since I've read a book for pleasure. It's so hard. I really don't have an answer for that one. You can skip it. Um, it's fine. An album, Pearl Jam 10. Okay, so so not something '80s heavy metal like you Motley Crue or I, something. <laughs> Motley Crue was definitely my go-to for much of my life, but in terms of the completeness of an album and one that has so much nostalgia to my high school years, I, I've got to go Pearl Jam. Okay. Well, listen, I want to uh, thank you once again for joining us and for making some time in a very busy schedule and for all the work that you have done and continue to do. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Danny Avula, who is the director of the Richmond City and Henrico County Health District and the Virginia State Vaccination Coordinator for joining us today. So thank you, sir. Great to be here, Julian. Thanks so much. 